0: Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week, I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era, and his enduring legacy. Hello, and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I am joined by Bane Atwood, who is a professor of history at Monash University and the author of William Cooper, An Aboriginal Life Story, which was published by Melbourne University Press last year. And he's the author of many other books as well. But today we are going to speak about William Cooper, who was an Aboriginal advocate of the early-ish 20th century. Welcome to Afternoon Light Bane.
1: Thanks very much, Regina.
0: And welcome to the Robert Menzies Institute here at the University of Melbourne. Lovely to have you come across from Monash. William Cooper is someone I think we should all know about, but of course one of the reasons why you wrote the book was to make sure that we do know about him because he isn't as well known as he should be. Can you tell me basically who he was?
1: William Cooper was a Yorta yorta man, born in his own country on the banks of the Murray River. As far as we know, he was born in 1860. So he's born after his people have been dispossessed of their land. The pastoral invasion in in his country begins in about 1840. There's already been severe depopulation. But part of the story I try to tell is what enables Cooper's people, the Yorta Yorta, to become such an important political force. Perhaps of any Aboriginal group or people or nation in Australia, the Yorta Yorta were very much to the fore in political work. And there's probably a number of ways of explaining why that's the case. I mean, one is that while they are dispossessed of much of their land, because the area is relatively remote in European terms, they are able to gain employment in the pastoral industry. And because the Murray River was such an important source of food, Prior to the beginning of colonisation, they were able to continue to tap its resources. And so they were able to retain some degree of independence. They could choose up to a point whether they worked in the partial industry or not. And they were able, by and large, to remain on their own country. And then further to that, in the mid-1870s, what plays a very important role for the Yorta Yorta, and more particularly in Cooper's life, is the introduction of Christianity in that form of two Christian missionaries, Daniel and Janet Matthews. And I think why Christianity is so important, not only to the Yorta Yorta, but to other people is that it provides them certainly with supporters of people who are sympathetic at a time when there's growing racial prejudice against Aboriginal people. Missionaries and those that are called humanitarians believe that everybody was of the same blood, that they were human beings. And perhaps most importantly, many of these missionaries had, if you like, reservations about at least aspects of colonisation. They regarded the Aboriginal people as the First Peoples, as what we would call the First Peoples. They believed that they had been wrongfully dispossessed of their land and they believed they had some rights on the basis of the fact that they were the First People. I think there's also evidence to suggest that in the teaching of Christianity, Daniel and General Matthews encouraged the Yorta Yorta to identify themselves with the Jews of the Bible. And in doing so, obviously, it's a story about the dispossession of, of Jews, but also offering the promise of a return to place. And we can see in the way that the missionaries taught, and music was very important. And so part of the story I tell in the book is the role that music played. And you know, many, many years later, the point where Cooper does politically active, which really only happens in the early 1930s, by which time he's in his 70s, music plays an important role. I think both in the way they understand their world and the sense of community and it's part of their political work.
0: Bane, when you came to write this book about William Cooper, and you'd written another book about him earlier, hadn't you? You made it clear that it wasn't going to be a biography, it was going to be a story, you say, an Aboriginal life. So I guess this question might be tricky to answer, but How would you describe the conditions of William Cooper's childhood in the 1860s? I mean, he has obviously contact with missionaries and there's a sense of Christian values being renewed, but what else was going on for him, do you think, in the 60s, to the extent you were able to gather that from records and the like?
1: Well, I think there's the ongoing importance of community, of a sense of kin. So it remains in some ways very much an Aboriginal world. Mm. despite the influence of Christianity, despite the fact that they have been dispossessed of their country and suffered huge population. I think it's important that there's a moment, again, with the missionaries where they are encouraged to farm land. There's this question of the return of land to them in the form of, well, not simply land being reserved, but how that land was to be used. And so there's a way in which from the mid-1870s onwards, or certainly by the, the 1880s, there's some degree of recovery going on. One wouldn't want to overstate that, but there's some degree of recovery There's some reason to have some hope that I think health is improving to some degree, although part of Cooper's story, and it is a very sad story, is the fact that he loses his first wife when there's a typhus epidemic. He loses his second wife later. He loses a number of his children, either in childbirth or later one of his sons, perhaps the son he felt closest to, who was named after Daniel Matthews, was killed in the First World War. So it's a continual struggle, but I think what's important is that they remain as a community. I mean, the nature of that community is changing, but to some degree they remain on their land. Also, I think what's important for Cooper, and certainly true when it comes to his political work, is that he gets a what we might call a wider horizon on the world, not simply because of the introduction of Christianity, but he travels, and mostly it's for work. So insofar as we can piece this together, he's clearly quite a, a youngster working on local pastoral runs. But then there's a point where there's tension between the pastoralists and the missionaries, and so I think he then finds it difficult to get work on the local pastoral runs. And so he moves to New South Wales. We know at one point he's up in the Gulf of Carpenteria, presumably droving. We know at one point that he was in New Zealand, presumably part of the Australian sharers who went there to work. And in amongst all of that, he becomes you know, a staunch trade unionist, we know that he subscribed to The Australian Worker for much of his life. I guess what's important is that even though he only had very limited education, he was able to read. So this put him as part of a wider world. I mean, Of course, part of the problem of many Aboriginal people is that they not only were dispossessed, but then ended up on missions and reserves, and were not part of a wider world. But I don't think that happens for many of Cooper's generation, and certainly not for Cooper.
0: No, it's, it's quite extraordinary to hearing you describe where he went, that he was really, even in a sort of white Australian's term, he was a well-travelled man. I mean, mm. going overseas to New Zealand, going right up to far north Queensland, that's quite extraordinary and obviously quite hungry for job opportunities too. How did you uncover and piece together that his travels? In what sort of way were you able to do that through yes. records? Well, one like of the there? interesting
1: questions for any historian trying to write a book like this is the very question you've raised. What is the nature of historical sources? And one of the important aspects that's drawn a number of historians to Cooper is the fact that there is an archive. Yeah. And it's unusual in that respect. I mean, Aboriginal people largely having what we might call an oral culture rather than a literary culture. For so many Aboriginal figures... There is hardly any archive and historians, even today, still traditionally rely on the on the written word, although photographs are a very important part of the book and perhaps we'll come back and talk about that. In this case, there's quite a considerable archive that comprises of the letters that Cooper wrote or were written in his name to government, primarily the federal government, but also some letters to the New South Wales government and a smaller number to the other state governments. But there is hardly any, what we might call a personal archive. To refer back to photos, what's interesting is there are photos held by members of the Cooper family, and I was very fortunate to be given permission to produce many of those in the book, but they don't have any of the letters he wrote. So we can reasonably assume that he's writing to other Aboriginal advocates, we can assume that he's writing to his children once they've grown up, but hardly any of those letters have survived. There's a website associated with the book. I think it has something like 350 documents, as far as I recall. And hardly any. I can think of one or two, maybe three letters, which are personal letters. Perhaps interestingly, one or two of those letters, rather, are written to Daniel and one of Daniel and Janet Matthews' children very late in his life, which sort of is testimony to the importance of connection. So the nature of that archive means that it's very difficult to get much of a sense of a person. I mean, traditionally in a biography, it's all about you know, their growing up and their relationships with parents and siblings. You get something of private life. And I mean, I formed the view, and that's why I've called it a life story rather than a biography, that even though clearly the genre or the form of biography has undergone many changes, that still there's a sense in so much biographical work that there is, if you like, a particular kind of self And I didn't think this was appropriate to try and pretend to write a biography of an Aboriginal man, at least of Cooper's generation, because their sense of self, I think, was very different to what we might call a bourgeois European self. The way they knew the world was very much tied up in their connections with family, with kin, and so I wanted to show the importance of that. And so... I'm aware that for many readers, they will find in the first part of the book, in other words, the first 70 years of Cooper's life before he becomes this political advocate, that Cooper often seems to be absent. Mm. And there's a point in his absence. One is that, well, he doesn't appear that much in the historical record, but I'm trying to make a point that he's immersed in a particular world, an an Aboriginal world, and I want the readers to grasp that this is the world he comes out of. And also to show that while I believe he's a remarkable man, I don't think he was exceptional. And what we can see early on, say in the 1880s and the 1890s, where there are petitions from the Yorta Yorta to government, in some cases, Cooper is a signatory to those petitions, but he's not the key figure by any means. So he has other men, mostly men, alongside of him that are doing most of what we would call the political work.
0: So the first part of the book really is setting out an explanation of the environment in which William Cooper is growing up in, influences of Christian missionaries, the sense of dispossession of the yorta-yorta, And of course, then that connection to workers' rights through the trade union movement, all those influences are informing William Cooper to be the advocate he ends up being in the early 1930s, which is fascinating and important. He was a deeply religious man, and you find this in a lot of Aboriginal advocates and activists that they are particularly religious, Christian religion being the predominant one. What were the aspects of that faith that informed his advocacy later in life? He was very influenced by the anti-slavery movement and emancipation.
1: That's right. If you read his work carefully, the word emancipation is a very mm. important word to him. And I think we can assume that it's part of the anti-slavery movement. The Matthews had some connections to the anti-slavery movement. I think the sense of the importance of caring for others. I came to the view that he was a very humane man and that his caring for other people certainly not only included Aboriginal people, but others as well. I think his alignment with the trade union movement is very important. He's eyes a labor man. Yeah. I think it's also important that later on his key ally and helper, a man by the name of Arthur Bodeau, a white man, belong to a particular church, the Church of Christ. And this is a church which is works in a way that is very independent, is not especially hierarchical, and there are a number of Aboriginal figures who have been pastors in the Church of Christ. I think Stan Grant's one of Stan Grant's uncles is a pastor, and there are other examples as well. So there's something about that church which I think enables them to bring in Aboriginal people and allow them to play a role, encourage them, support them.
0: A feature of the 20th century, at least sort of up until I think the 70s or so, was this idea of assimilation of Aboriginal people into Australian society and some of the most egregious outcomes of that were stolen generation. But, I mean, you look at the photographs, the beautiful photographs you have in your book and I know you put them on this new website as well so people can access them themselves and he's dressed very much in the British style, you know, suit, tie, Hair very nicely done, extremely well-groomed, good-looking mm. man, strong features. He was obviously deeply connected to his land and his kin, but how much was he assimilated into the sort of British part of Australian society?
1: As far as we can tell, I mean, this is a very important sense of himself. His, one of his grandsons, Uncle Bordy Turner, who's still alive in his early 90s, who lived with his grandfather for a period in the 1930s when he's a political advocate, remembers how careful he was with his dress as you're saying that he would never go out unless he was dressed in a particular way and one of I suppose you might say my favorite photographs in the book is a wonderful photo of him striding down one of the main streets or the main shopping street in Footscray which is where he lived throughout the 1930s his time in Melbourne and you get such a sense of dignity of purpose and I think Part of the influence of missionaries on him is that they believe that the pathway for Aboriginal people is to adopt so many aspects of British or more specifically English culture. And they saw this as a policy or Mm. a way of opportunity. And the term assimilation, historians like Tim Rouse have usefully reminded us, is it's a complex term. It has a number of aspects to it. And what I try and show in the book is the points where Cooper is clearly embracing it to some degree, but also taking issue with it. And part of what he's trying to do, and I guess what any political figure has to do, is work within the dominant political discourses of the day. And certainly by the 1930s, if not earlier, the dominant discourse about race, as we would call it, is that if Aboriginal people are going to be advanced in the terms of the day, they should be granted the same rights and privileges as Australian citizens. And so there's a call for citizenship rights for Aboriginal people. They're having all the same rights as non-Aboriginal Australian subjects or citizens. And there's space, if you like, to articulate a sense of difference. But partly because of the time that Cooper is born, namely in the early 1860s and when he grows up, and because of his connections to land and his people, I think an important thread in his work is calling for rights for Aboriginal people, even if they're citizenship rights, but calling for them on the basis that Aboriginal people have a special claim to those, because they are the First Peoples, what we call the First Peoples. They are the Aboriginal people. The point where he clearly takes issue with the dominant racial discourse of the 1930s is when he insists that Aboriginal people do not make any distinction amongst themselves on the basis of their biological inheritance. And... Apart from anything else, this is a subject that's very close to his heart because, like so many Aboriginal people of his generation, he's born of a sexual relationship between an Aboriginal woman and a white man, and... One of the questions in the book was in regard to his paternity, what role, if any, did the white father play? And as far as I could see, there was no great role at all, which was a very typical story of, right. of, of white men having sexual relationships with and Aboriginal then, women. And then
0: leaving. And and then that, yeah. and that was
1: it. I mean, that wasn't obviously the case in every instance, but no. that seems to have been the case with...
0: That there wasn't a marriage out of that relationship or some sort of longstanding standing No. Relationship between the father and son. That's right. So
1: there's obviously continuing importance of the figure of his mother, Kitty, and his brothers and sisters.
0: And his brothers and sisters were from different relationships. Is that the sense you got or were they connected, their fathers connected?
1: That was hard to establish. I suppose what's important is that as far as Cooper was concerned if you like a reckoning family in their particular way and biological inheritance is not regarded as an important aspect. So he of didn't that.
0: focus so much on who his father was, but he wanted to assert that irrespective of who his father was, he was a Yorta Yorta man and that was part of his identity. That he
1: was aboriginal yeah. and one of the points he repeatedly makes and it's one of the few occasions actually where he uses the word discrimination. Of course when we think of the term racial discrimination we have a particular understanding but when Cooper uses the word discrimination what he's objecting to is white racial discourse, distinguishing between Aboriginal people as he sees them on the basis of biological inheritance. And right. he's saying, we do not make these distinctions and there should be no such distinction in government policy. And at that time, so much of government policy in regard to Aboriginal people rests on a distinction between so-called half-castes and so-called full-bloods. And he is very much challenging that. Yeah, He's saying, this is not important for us whether we are so-called half caste or so-called full-blood, we all regard ourselves as Aboriginal. So there's a very strong assertion of his sense of what we would call Aboriginality.
0: You've mentioned earlier that William Cooper had a son who he named after Christian missionary, Daniel, and that son who he was particularly close to very sadly died, as so many did in World War One. That hugely affected him not just at a personal level but also as a sense of injustice, that Aboriginal people were going off to fight for empire and for freedom for Australia and broader, but that they weren't necessarily treated like equal citizens back home.
1: Yes, so... Near the end of his life, and he dies in the early 1940s, near the end of his life, when Second World War is looming and begins, there's some discussion about whether there could be a specifically Aboriginal regiment. And he speaks out very strongly against this. It wasn't the first time he spoke in these terms, but he's remembering what happened to... Aboriginal returned soldiers after the First World War, where the white returned soldiers are offered, some might say for better or worse, land. and The soldier settlement scheme, of course, had very mixed results, but Aboriginal men were not offered that. And at one point he says, why should Aboriginal men go off and fight for nation and empire when that nation and empire dispossessed us of our land? So it's a very sharp political point that he's making. As far as I recall, this is one of the points he makes in one or more of the letters he writes to Menzies. What he also says to Menzies is, well, you're saying that part of the point of fighting the Second World War is to stand up for minorities. And there's a particular point in his political work where what I would call the language of minorities undoubtedly becomes important. He's very much aware of what's going on in Europe in the mid and late 1930s. He's very much aware of what's happening to Jewish people particularly after Kristallnacht in late 1938. And he starts using the notion of minorities to say, well, what about us? You're talking about all these European minorities, but what about us at home? surely our rights should be attended as minorities. And if you're going to fight this war for minorities and freedom, you have to make sure that Aboriginal people are offered citizenship rights, not once the war is concluded, but now. So it's part of his ongoing push for the rights of citizenship.
0: Yeah, very powerful points. I think it's worth reading out a quote from that letter to Robert Menzies from William Cooper, where he says, He says, It would be disastrous if, in the fight for liberty, we lost what we were fighting for, though we won the war. It will be worse than that if, after the empires fought for the liberty of European minorities, Australia should continue to refuse freedom and liberty to her sadly treated minority. Yeah, extremely powerful statement. And.
1: Part of, I think, his skill as a political advocate is that he's able to, if you like, mobilise notions of Britishness, and as the letter that you just read, yes, implies notions of British liberty and
0: and that Enlightenment values too, the Scottish Enlightenment values that Menzies held mm. very firm in his political beliefs. Yes, he's repeating that, a lot of that yes, language. Yes, and in some ways
1: standing on its head. And so there's a point where, in regard to the development of the Far North, where you know there's consideration of who is the federal government going to get to do that work. And he's pushing very strongly that Aboriginal people should be chosen. And he said, well, who better to do it? Sometimes he says, well, there's ways in which Aboriginal people are more British than the British. In some ways, I think both working within those terms, but subverting them in various ways.
0: William Cooper, I think, is particularly well known for his petition to King George V in 1933 on behalf of the Australian Aborigines League, which he was part of and, I think, instrumental in setting up. That sense that Aboriginal advocates look up to the monarchy is quite interesting. You read that a lot in Neville Bonner, the first Aboriginal Australian member of parliament. A lot of his speeches, he makes appeals to the monarchy as a force for good and a force for authority and, and someone you can appeal to for some sort of recognition of Aboriginal people that Aboriginal people are, are your subjects too. So.
1: This is a very, as you're saying, this is a very important thread not only in Australian Indigenous people but in so many Indigenous peoples throughout the British Empire dating from, certainly from the early to mid-19th century. Often it's figured in quite personal terms in terms of Queen Victoria. Herself. And I think what is going on here is that they seeing this to some degree as a relationship between themselves and the British Crown, there's a belief that the British Crown has given certain undertakings. And so what I found interesting is that whereas the British Crown made no treaties with Aboriginal people here, unlike in so many other areas of British colonization, perhaps best well known to Australians, the New Zealand case with the Treaty of Waitangi. Despite there being no treaty, Cooper very strongly believed that there is a moment very early in the British colonisation, perhaps at the beginning, that the British Crown gave an undertaking to protect Aboriginal people. Mm. Now, the notion of protection is one that has, if you like, fallen out of favour and we all tend to be very critical because of what we associate with protection. But protection was a very powerful idea. Cooper. He believed genuinely that the Crown had given these undertakings that its instrumentalities, such as the protection boards, had failed to honour that promise. And so there's this deep historical thread in his work that he's seeking to remind the state of these undertakings that he believed the Crown gave. I think there's a sense, too, very clearly, that Aboriginal people, once responsible government, is granted in the Australian colonies, where they don't feel like making any headway. There's no traction with first the colonial governments and then the state governments. But they genuinely believe that the British Crown had reserved some powers in regard to Aboriginal people. And so there's this ongoing appeal. So there's nothing remarkable in the fact that Cooper decides in drawing up that petition in 1933 to direct it to the British King of the day. And in the same year, another Aboriginal figure in New South Wales, with whom he seems to have had some family connection, also calls for a petition to the British King.
0: So in this petition, and he amazingly gets almost 2,000 Aboriginal people to sign it, which this is not the day of a change.org petition where you just put it on Facebook and thousands of people sign it. I mean, this would have been individually going around getting people to sign this and and
1: lots of letter writing and lots of frustrations needing his view to seek the permission of the protection boards or the protectors before sending the petition so enormous amount of work a lot of frustration
0: but he's asking for aboriginal representation is there a much detail around what that would entail is it that aboriginal people can run for elected office in the parliaments or is it something more like this voice to parliament idea that we're talking about Talking about now in a contemporary sense because it's really interesting to read about William Cooper and understand that appealing for Aboriginal representation wasn't just something that someone came up with a few years ago. This is something that an Aboriginal advocate like William Cooper is talking about in 1933 and presumably in the decades before that. So, it'd be interesting to understand what he's appealing to particularly.
1: Yes, I think there's this fundamental belief that, as is still true today, that Aboriginal people should be part of governing themselves that problems that so many people are encountering of Cooper's generation is that their point of view, their way of seeing things, is simply ignored by authorities, whether it's government in the form of the federal or state governments or it's in the form, more intimately, of the protection boards. So in calling for representation in the petition, it's Cooper, and here I think he was persuaded by some of his white allies, was open to the representative in the federal parliament not being Aboriginal, in other words, being a white person who was sympathetic to Aboriginal people. But I think in his own writings and those who profoundly influenced him, Thomas and Chadwick James, who start advocating for representation in Parliament before Cooper does, this is in the late 1920s and the early 1930s, and they are calling for an Aboriginal person to represent Aboriginal people. And there's various points where Cooper is not only calling for a voice In the federal parliament, but he's also calling for an Aboriginal voice in state parliaments, Aboriginal voices on Protection Board, Aboriginal voices in the management of Aboriginal reserves.
0: And this is pre-1967 referendum and pre-the 1962 Electoral Act changes, so Aboriginal people aren't counted in the census... Aboriginal people don't necessarily have a right to vote in certain states. And I mean, particularly Western Australia and Queensland, they're not allowed to vote. And you also have a sense that the Commonwealth has power over Aboriginal people when it comes to the territories, but this is left to the state governments too. So there's, are you appealing to the federal government or the state governments? It's quite unwieldy.
1: Yes, and I think part of the point of Cooper's campaign is saying that he thinks the federal government does have a responsibility, and unless they assume greater responsibility, Aboriginal people will, will continue to be very, very poor. That's the very important part of his campaign. Yeah. I think what's so striking about the petition is that, as you see it, only Aboriginal people are to sign the petition. So it's a very much an Aboriginal petition, and I think this reflects the fact that the organisation he founds shortly after coming to Melbourne, the Australian Aborigines League, only aboriginal people could be full members of the league yeah which is not to say that not white figures involved are very important in its work and necessarily so because you know aboriginal people are say that they are poor and they lack the necessary capital to do the political work but nonetheless cooper wants the australian aboriginal league to be an Aboriginal voice, for it to be seen as an Aboriginal voice. And part of the language which illustrates this is that he has a particular phrase, which I think is an intriguing one, and it's the phrase thinking black. And at various points he says to federal ministers that however sympathetic they may be to the Aboriginal cause, with rare exceptions, they don't have the capacity to think black. And I think at the heart of Cooper's notion of thinking black, in other words, having an Aboriginal perspective, was the historical experience of Aboriginal people. And at one point he says, well, the white people are the victors and we are the oppressed, we are the dispossessed. And so his sense of being Aboriginal is very closely aligned or immersed in the sense of Aboriginal people having a different historical experience since the beginning of colonisation. That means that they think differently, they feel differently. Of course, this this is part of the continuing argument about a voice to Parliament and the struggle for Aboriginal people to be heard.
0: It's interesting, reflecting on where we've come since the 1930s, And now we have a reasonable number of Aboriginal people elected as representatives in the federal parliament, not least the federal parliament, also in in state parliaments as well. It's hypothetical, you know, we're guessing here. But what do you think William Cooper would have thought of having so many Aboriginal people now representing their states, their territories, their electorates in the parliament? And would that have been enough?
1: I think in some ways, if he was still alive today, he would be appalled by how little it changed Mm. and amazed by some of the changes that you just mentioned. Of course, his call on the petition is, from our point of view, an extraordinarily modest one. All he's asking is one parliamentarian. And I suppose that speaks to how marginalised Aboriginal people were and and how that limited what they could realistically hope for. And amongst his white advisers are those who are very sceptical about this call for representation in Parliament, knowing what the nature of you know, racial thought and opinion in Australia is at the time, they had doubts about whether the British Crown, the King, had any responsibility, had any authority to act. And so there was lots of discouragement. But I think he, yes, he would be amazed at the number of Aboriginal MPs, but it's working off such in such a low base, so to speak, so much, as I'm saying, influenced by the world in which he lived and the degree of... Poverty and discrimination, and so forth.
0: Something you reference quite a bit in your book, and part of William Cooper's story, the sort of tragedy of William Cooper's story, is that he didn't really get many responses to these letters, to the petition. You know, it was not even you're wrong or we disagree or, okay, thank you, this is very interesting, and file it away. There was one point you conclude that the petition itself is probably just put in the bin because there's no record of it.
1: Yes, I think yes, it's an enormous frustration because while he gets formal responses, he feels like he's being bobbed off, he feels like he's being ignored, and for all of this political work, and particularly at the point where he holds back the petition for some time after you know, he's gathered something like 2,000 signatures and it's ready to go, he holds it back and he makes it clear to government that he's holding it back, he's giving them an opportunity to act, and that comes to nothing, and he's bitterly disappointed, not surprisingly. And you can sense in some of his letters that he's struggling to contain the anger that he feels. And in the case of the petition, I've come to the view that it was taken somewhat more seriously than historians previously realised. The point that it's submitted, Joseph Lyons is the Prime Minister. At the time, at least some journalists' believe that Lyons was sympathetic and that this might have something to do with the fact that he came from Tasmania and so, of course, knew what had happened to Aboriginal people in Tasmania. But some of the public servants deeply unsympathetic. But they do ask federal government's chief legal officer for advice and he points out what is possible in terms of the constitution and what's impossible. But what I think is really sad is that I don't think the federal government told Cooper that they were shelving it. And so the last political letter he writes, which is to Menzies Mm. in August 1940, the last line is saying (laughs) What has happened to our petition? And I think, I'm not sure what the reason was, but I do believe he wasn't told that it was being shelved. And I think at some point, public servant thinks, well, what's the point of keeping this? And so, of course, we have the petition, but we don't have the roles with all the signatures. And as far as I know, archivists in the National Archives of Australia have searched and searched and searched for this, but no trace of it.
0: The other important thing that William Cooper was involved in was calling for a day of mourning to mark the 150th anniversary of British Settlement of Australia, what became known as Australia Day. So this was in 1938, the 26th of January. Again, this was something that he was doing in 1938 and in my childhood of the 80s and 90s, Australia Day has been a quite an important day for celebration but in recent years has become contested and obviously the some parts of the community who now consider it a national day of mourning. Again, this idea that William Cooper was such an early advocate of many of the causes that I think people would think are quite recent phenomena in Australia is extraordinary. What was the response? to the 1938 call for a day of mourning.
1: We today probably know more about this day of mourning than contemporary. did. It gets some coverage in the press of the day, not surprisingly, yeah. in the Sydney newspapers because marking the event was probably more a New South Wales affair than it was of Victoria or some of the other states. Those involved... In the Day of Mourning, but not Cooper himself, actually. A few days after it had an opportunity to meet Lyons and put forward a, a raft of, of proposals for reform. But that's really about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's striking that Cooper conceived of this. I think it shows a way in which in his thinking he was very much engaged with a white man's account of Australian history. And he's been involved in activities in Melbourne where The Australian Natives Association, in other words, a white nationalist organisation, is celebrating white nationalism and he goes with members of the Australian Aboriginal League to such an occasion in 1937 and he's disgusted by this celebration. He says there's no mention of Aboriginal people in any of this. And so I think throughout his work he's always pushing back against the celebrated story of the forming of of the white nation and always trying to draw attention to the absence of Aboriginal people In the story. And I think he's also working within what we might call a Christian sense of time. He talks about days of judgment, days of celebration, days of mourning. I think that's where the notion of a day of mourning comes from. I think what's remarkable is that for all his disappointment, he continues to hope and he continues to struggle up until the time that his health fails him.
0: Does this day of mourning continue after 1938 in any sense, or is this sort of dies off and is resurrected? in more recent times? Well,
1: as well as Cooper's no idea for a day of mourning, he also had an idea for what he called Aboriginal Sunday. And this was to be the Sunday closest to the 26th of January. And it was a call for all the Christian churches in Australia to mark that Sunday by having sermons which made some reference to Aboriginal people and their, their place in Australia. And this was the origins of NADOC. That's the way in which it picked up in the early 1940s, I think then fell into disuse, but then returned. And then in the late 1960s and 1970s, when there's an emergence of what we might call Aboriginal radicalism with black power, those like Kath Walker or Uttarununakal, they learned about Cooper's notion of thinking black, and they're aware of his involvement in the day of mourning. And so there's, again, the role of history or historical understanding is very important to Aboriginal political work
0: as we end this discussion, and, you know, we were saying before, William Cooper's story, well, is one of lasting significance given the campaigns that are still being run to this day in 2022, but it's also a very sad story. He didn't get what he was calling for, but he does return to Yorta Yorta land and passes away there with his kin. Uh, is there something that can be said of his lasting significance in that he did return to country and was... Somewhat at peace with at least his faith and his kin.
1: I suppose the way I would put it, and what I think is the most important, is the way in which he passed the baton on. Right. So, yeah. particularly in Doug Nicholls, he regarded as his prodigy, but also the Onus brothers. Nichols very much after the end of the Second World War, he becomes very much involved in the Australian Aboriginal League due to Cooper's encouragement. But after his death, he really becomes the standard bearer and carries on this work. And I think that's the best example of Cooper's legacy. The work doesn't end with his death that he's had profound impact on, on Doug Nichols, and it's clear in, in Doug Nichols' biography that Cooper was absolutely crucial he used to walk to the football ground where Nichols was training and wait and wait and wait until he came out and just (laughs) say no this is the cause you should be involved and eventually persuaded him that that's what he should do
0: well that's the important thing is not seeing these causes you fight for as bookended by your own life that they should be bigger than the individual well Bain Atwood thank you so much for joining me on Afternoon Light talk about William Cooper it's been an absolute pleasure to have this discussion
1: Thanks, Jerome. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.